Welcome to the Navit Gaming Podcast, where it is our mission to explore the business and future of video games. We bring together the industry's brightest builders, investors, and thinkers to keep a pulse on current events, dissect emerging trends and games, share lessons learned, and have a great time. This podcast is also part of Novik's growing ecosystem, which ranges from free and premium research to consulting and advisory services. For more information, visit www.novik.co. This episode is brought to you by Nexus. Building a support a creator program is something all live service game developers should be doing, but without the right engineering bandwidth or marketing expertise, doing so can be a challenge. Nexus's creator program in a box makes it easy for game devs to build and manage world-class creator programs, driving significant growth in conversion, ARPU, retention, and LTV. Nexus has partnered with incredible live service publishers like Capcom, Grinding Gear Games, Hi-Rez, Ninja Kiwi, and more, and would love to help you, our Navic Gaming Podcast listeners, do the same. If interested in learning more, simply head to nexus.gg slash Novik. There you can learn more about the efficacy of support of creator programs and discover how to easily build your own. Again, that's nexus.gg slash Novik, or check out the link in the show notes. And with that, let's jump into the episode. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Novik Roundtable. I'm your host, Devin Becker. And with me, I have two fantastic panelists, as always, the ever-lively Aaron Bush, and then Jonathan Nastas here as well to continue to liven things up. How are you guys doing today? Awesome. Great. Excited to be here. I think everyone's a little fired up for today. But first, a little message from our host, Aaron. Yeah, well, that makes it sound so official. But yeah, I just wanted to have a, two quick plugs at the beginning. First, if you read this week's Novic Digest, you probably saw our announcement that we are ramping up our mobile free-to-play user acquisition offerings. So obviously, in the wake of ATT and a slowing mobile market, uh, mobile UA has become trickier over the past couple of years. And we've sensed a rising need in our clients to be able to better offer uh, a more well-rounded support. So that's what we're doing. And our offering range ranges from UA lifecycle strategy and setting up the, the tech stack to analytics, creatives production, app store optimization, and more. And so just wanted to quickly mention that. But to get more info about what all is included in our mobile UA offerings, just head to our website, Navic.co, click on the consulting tab, and it'll be right there in front of you. And then second, I just wanted to, to also note that I'm working to launch what we're currently calling our Gaming Financial Markets Insights Reports. And so this is basically a monthly report series that covers a bunch of the stuff that I tend to talk about on the pat and on the podcast, but in a lot more depth, and you know, with an eye for opportunity. So it covers our Novic Gaming Universe, which is all of the most important publicly traded games companies. We'll dive into all sorts of detailed company updates, like earnings updates, dig into the top performers and underperformers, provide insights on every single games industry M and A venture strategic transaction. And we'll do a lot of work to highlight under the radar interesting investment ideas too. So it's coming together really well. And so if you're an investor, investment banker, executive, or just study a lot of companies in your you know corporate strategy job, this is probably going to be a valuable resource. So I'm currently looking for a few pilot customers who can kind of help shape 
this report into something that's most useful before it goes live to everyone. So if you'd be interested in learning more or helping shape what that report is, just shoot me an email at aaron at novic.co and I'd be happy to chat. So those are my, my two quick plugs. We got a lot going on, but excited to jump into to all of the news now. Yeah, for those of you who aren't aware, Novic has a pretty diverse cast of, of consultants with a lot of different backgrounds, a lot of different like knowledge bases, a lot of different experience. So definitely, if you're unfamiliar and just listen to the podcast and aren't too up to date on that stuff, definitely check out uh, what we got going. Obviously, the Digest tries to touch a lot on a lot of different those areas. But, uh, but yeah, we always feel free, you know, if, if you're interested, you know, to, to reach out. A lot of cool stuff going on. But a lot of cool stuff in the news as well, as you mentioned. We've got a lot of topics today. <clears throat> Modern Warfare 3 on a lot of people's minds. Some, some interesting discussion around live service games and where that might have maybe overcorrected uh, One Direction. The new Steam Deck, for those of you who hadn't heard as well, we'll talk about that a little bit. And then we've got Roblox's earnings as earnings season continues. Overwatch League, not doing so great. And uh, maybe we'll touch on a little extra if we get to it. But uh, let's just start with Modern Warfare 3, what everyone's enjoying talking about and or playing. It's November. It's another year. It's time for another Call of Duty, right? A, a topic near and dear to my heart, having launched five of these. So here we are, Modern Warfare 3, actually Modern Warfare 3 2.0, actually, if you sort of go back to the way it used to be, developed by Sledgehammer, released on the 10th. It's had a tough go in its first few days out there in the marketplace. I believe it's the lowest rated Metacritic score for Call of Duty, at least in, in my time frame, sitting in the 50s, depending on the platform. Uh, I've seen as low as 50, hovering around 54. The, the critique has been primarily based around a very thin campaign experience and just overall thinness with the content itself. Like, in essence, is this DLC masquerading as a game. Some fuel was thrown on that fire with a pretty deep Bloomberg article on was this actually, in fact, an expansion pack turned into a game based on Treyarch's inability to deliver the game that was supposed to launch this year and some denial from the Sledgehammer team and, and no comment, I believe, from the official Activision team. It's a little early to see how global sales are. We saw some initial data out of the UK that said physical sales are down 25%. I think under the best of circumstances, we would expect physical sales down some percentage because the world is moving to digital, of course, and especially, you know, Xbox is is primarily a a digital platform. So that box is a little harder to unpack. I think what will be interesting to notice in the next couple of days is usually somewhere between around 10 days afterwards is the classic Activision Brad stat. Right. Like last year, it was a billion dollars. I was actually looking back on when I launched the old MW3 and we announced $775 million in five days, about 10 days after launch. So we're getting a little close. So I think in terms of like how the whole global ecosystem, physical and digital is doing, that will be really the attempt to to, to glean where we are. But it, it looks like a little bit of a tough start from fan feedback out of the gate. Well, I'll just zoom out. A little bit. I mean, to me, it's been impressive what Call of Duty as an ecosystem has pulled off over the past three years, let's call it. Expanding into free-to-play with Warzone, uh, with Call of Duty Mobile, and, and obviously they're, you know, they've been able to, to build out their audience 
and continued to scale Call of Duty, which was already, you know, like a, a top, top game. And so being able to pull that off has been really impressive. But at the same time, probably the least impressive part of that two to three years has been the, the premium content treadmill. And if you look back at the past three years now, two of the last three, Modern Warfare 3 now and then Vanguard two years ago, both had pretty heavy criticisms for maybe for slightly different reasons. This one just seems to be more rushed, where it was maybe meant to maybe be a DLC and then they kind of spun it into a full game. And Call of Duty revenue is like crack, I guess. And it's hard to hard to get away from once you've been on it for 20 years. But but also, you know, I think there's just been some questionable decisions that have been then made in in sort of the design of the games that just has some players questioning what is going on, are they really listening to feedback, etc. And so if you look at the past couple of years, it could be like, why did they take the red dots off the mini-map? Or like, uh, or to like unlock guns to, to play with that people want to play with. They got to like go through all sorts of hoops of like, oh, you got to use like this scope and unlock these things. And then uh, after that, unlock this scan to then get this, <laughs> you know, to then get the weapon you want. And it, it was sort of a maze. And some of that has been unpacked, but it's just sort of a new set of issues. And maybe this is just sort of, what happens in the modern day if you try to stay on the content treadmill year after year as games become more complex to make and expectations rise. And if anything happens and anything has to get delayed, it kind of messes things things up and quality will drop. And so I think there's some truth to that. I don't know under Microsoft if anything will change. I would be kind of curious to hear your thought on that, Jonathan. Clearly, this is like a kind of a modern day Call of Duty issue. And Modern Warfare 3 is showing the worst of it. But if you kind of look at the past three, as I said, there have been some, some problems. They've kind of shuffled what studios are, are working on what. Do you think that as you know, Activision changes leadership a bit, has a new parent looking at this, is also looking at how it complements Game Pass, maybe takes on a different, different business implications. Do you think the Call of Duty premium model, the treadmill, do you think it changes at all or do you think they just try to to bandage it up and and keep it plugging along for the next decade i certainly can't speak to you know is microsoft going to walk away from annual releases it's hard to walk away from two to three billion dollars every year but i think some of the underlying structure would have to remain and and the and the corollary i'm going to make is so activision built a culture when i was there around like studios amassing a great deal of power and say because Bobby really believed that like creativity is the magic, right? And he didn't want to disempower the creativity. You can talk about all the tensions with the studios over time, but ultimately Treyarch had a lot of power, Sledgehammer had a lot of power, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And to some degree, you're held a little bit hostage to that once you cede that much power. And it's hard from a publishing structure to sort of pound down. The, the corollary that I would make is I go back to a time when Microsoft owned Bungie. And you had some of that same tension, you know, around what was a similar cash cow at the same time with Halo. And ultimately, you know, in that case, that that relationship fragmented so much that, you know, there were there was an exit, right? The Bungie exited from the Microsoft fold. So to some degree, you have this natural tension between publisher and developer. And the more powerful the franchise is, the more powerful the, you know, the developer becomes and the more power and, and the greater the stakes of that tension. And, and Ultimately, that's what gaming is built on. So it'll be it'll be hard. 
right? Like, like magically, like having Microsoft oversee doesn't like mitigate Treyarch's power, mitigate, you know, Sledgehammer's power or, or whatever. But the question will be to your point, when you go into a world of game pass, do you try to take that whole cycle and it's about feeding additional content as opposed to additional releases, right? To, to, without moving into a later topic today, but do, do you see a move to a more live ops? Like, I think the bigger question is like, does it move to more of like a live ops model and an always on model? which was debated even during my time at Microsoft. But I think you'll still have the underlying sort of publisher studio tension, r- regardless of model. I guess the question then also is, is does it make sense to, if, you, if you're going to release games annually anyways, just switch to like the sports style model? Like, I mean, those, some of those you could be argued are kind of like DLC. Yeah. Or, you know, like they're just replacing players, whatever. Yeah. And I think what carries these games for players that still are enjoying it, because I've talked to some who, you know, enjoy the, the game still, is that that COD gunplay and gameplay is still like there, right? The bones are good. Yep. So it's like you could kind of, yeah, okay, we threw a bad story in, but the multiplayer is still there. Or, you know, like, oh, it's, it's old maps that were good. I, I feel like they could, if they just keep those bones in place, they could kind of just DLC it and actually just do that, like, as a why not just throw a year on there and just do it like it is right just just make it a call of duty 2023 2024 and and stop pretending they're not trying to go that direction i mean we have the whole the rotation of three teams and you know if anything is wrong because you were more in there but like the whole rotation of three teams was the compromise to then still pump it out yearly without compromising on quality but it's like well if we're still ending up back there anyways maybe they just need to own that and be like let's not try and make this huge campaign and all these other changes and just be like, let's just iterate every year the way that sports games do. And, you know, it's not like those are failing. We just talked about it. FC 24 very recently, how well that's doing. I, I doubt that changed a huge amount of the game. I, I agree. And it's interesting because you, you're starting to see some hints of that, right? You have progress carry forward, I believe from this year to last for the first time. So you, so you're starting to see it. The, the only step back I'll sort of make, and it's leaning towards that, is I am always surprised about, like, the loud complaint about campaign. Like, at least the data that I used to saw, like, campaign was just a small piece of total hours played. It sounds like a vocal minority. Like, I get it. I mean, to me, it sort of feels like gamers are some way conservative. I paid $60, so I expect a good campaign, right? Even though, say, 70% of those players never touch the campaign. Oh, I'm sorry, like 30% of the players never touch the campaign or like 70% of the players never complete the campaign. There's still complaints about if is the campaign thin. And, and I don't know if that's like trying to tie it back to the value of the price of a premium AAA game today, but it's like, come on guys, you're not actually spending that much time on the campaign. Why are you complaining about it? Yeah, I asked, do we think anything will change? <laughs> I think my answer is no. I think that Call of Duty is one of the rare companies or IPs that kind of, does like have its cake and eat it too in the sense that of course it benefits year after year from the premium model but it also benefits from from the from live ops and if anything it's about how can they put more like resources into it to maintain all of that and scale up the ecosystem further and further reinforce the ecosystem together year after year to I doubt the campaign's going anywhere, but maybe even like de-emphasize it just by emphasizing mm-hmm. other things um, more um, uh, uh, year after year across platforms, across devices, etc. So, so yeah, I'm, I sort of expect that it'll just maybe Call of Duty, you know, its bumps enable others to come in, try something new, and maybe 
carve a little bit of footing for themselves in the shooter market. And maybe Call of Duty's like absolute dominance as like a premium title or percent played of shooters continues to to decrease over time. I sort of expect that would be the case, but at least you know for the next five years or so, it's really hard to see anything meaningful change in the business model of this game. And also, probably uh, Microsoft would be hard pressed to do that too, given that it just went through the whole antitrust hearings around how it how it needs to treat Call of Duty for for everyone else too. But yeah, rough rough year, rough two out of the past three years. A bit of a yellow flag worth worth keeping an eye on for the next couple of years because if that turns into a pattern, probably bigger changes are on the horizon, but hopefully they can get back to to normal and smoother sailing soon. But also let's remember, failing Call of Duty would be a failure that almost any publisher in the world would beg to have, right? Like, I only made a billion eight. I only made 2.2. You know, it's the, the even when you look at the tough years, when you look at earnings, margins are still high. You know, I feel like everyone bounces between wanting new stuff and nostalgia too. Like, there's this constant mm-hmm. back and forth, like where it's like obviously there was modern warfare and now there's modern warfare again. We've had modern warfare one and two, I think twice now, right? Like, even though it's like not the same company, they've gone, they went and did respawn. And, mm-hmm. and so it's like we're in this weird situation where like, the excitement around this one that people are like, still like enjoying is the old maps and so you get this this back and forth of like bring back the classics but do something new and bring back the classics it's like it's like we're watching star wars sequels or something where they're just like they don't know which direction to go at this point and i you know that that helps them coast i think a little bit too where they could just go you know we'll bring back some things that people like so at least some of the people will not complain but you know as you said it's like oh no a stumble where we only like got rich still uh off like because i mean if they normally spend three years working on it and they made say half as much money but they only spent a year on it. That's actually more money than they would make spending three years on it. If you think about it, like, yeah, the reputation takes a hit, right? But they still made more profit. They And it's not like, oh no, like those people that bought it, like were half as many people, they, they'll continue to buy DLC for this and continue to like still fund it going forward as well. So it's like, it, it's not like they're going to lose money out of it. And they, this reputation seems pretty bulletproof. I think you'd have to like really like tank it for like 10 years at this point, it seems like, to like just be gone with it. And it's, and it's funny with the campaign thing, too, because you, you saw Battlefield going through that identity crisis over, do we start to put in single-player content because maybe that's why COD's beating us? Or do we just really focus on our multiplayer? And they went back and forth on that, like wanting to maybe do some single-player stuff. But as you said, like I'm sure you, you probably looked at the achievement stuff and the other metrics and like could see like people aren't doing this. Like You probably could just look at Steam achievements and find out like people aren't completing a good majority of it. They yeah. just want to feel like they pay the right price, but maybe maybe this needs to move to a model where they uh, spread out that price over the year. And they're just like, hey, we'll do a year season pass. We'll break the campaign up into like four parts. We'll release one every three months or whatever and like tease that out and then spread out the development time. And that way people will actually end up paying more. So we'll charge them 20 bucks every quarter and then they'll end up paying 80. Like, you know, like, but they'd feel okay with it because I'm paying 20 bucks for that campaign. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like they could just totally. embrace this and actually like work it in a way that makes more money, but with less griping, probably. And, and tying back to your point about, you know, sort of like, you know, added content and revenue. So, you know, total number of sales has been falling for years with a couple of exceptions. But ARPU, when you look at earnings, continues to rise. And as long as ARPU and LTV continues to rise, you can live off a diminished base, right? You know. They've arguably been making more money off fewer copies sold for a number of years now. 
I also think the tie-ins to the other stuff, the Warzone stuff and everything also helps because like, so normally I, I, I mean, I bought a few Call of Duties, but I don't really like spend much money on it. It's not a franchise. Like I like the gunplay, but I don't get into the games that much, but I got really into DMZ, for example, right? And then I'm buying like COD skins for DMZ, but I'm still buying COD skins. Like at the end of the day, like it's all tied into one product. So through that free entry, they got me into buying something for the pay thing that I was never even going to buy because it's tied to the same thing. And it's like, well, uh, I guess I could use this in the main game too. And it's, it seems like they found like a good compromise there in terms of making money off that. That way, I mean, I don't know what the sales look like of that stuff. And it, we even have like a weird situation now where it's, it's hard to identify the sales and, and, uh, and then like the, the amount of people playing and stuff on Steam because it's kind of packaged like a DLC in this one single Call of Duty thing. And I, don't, I almost wonder if that's a way to kind of obfuscate like a lot of the stuff going on as well as like, but I've heard it's like a launcher launching a launcher and weird stuff like that where it's, it's kind of this hack right now where it's not really, they haven't made that transition completely yet. But it, it does make me wonder, like because of the, uh, the Xbox stuff, right? That you mentioned, Aaron, where, you know, Microsoft's like, oh, we made all these deals to make sure Call of Duty's on every platform. But then what if they just set up a situation where there's these season passes or these regular DLCs and they go, well, Xbox Game Pass users just get that for free. And so that's their exclusive. That's their competitive advantage. It's like, yeah, you can buy this stuff on any platform. But the only way you're going to get it for free is by having a Game Pass right? Like, because it won't be part of any Sony pass or whatever. So like, it seems like they could still find a way to angle this so that they get that advantage and don't compromise this hard. But I don't know, there's lots of directions this could go. Obviously, a lot of people not super happy about it, but checks are cashing. And let's look for either a deafening silence or a big brag stat in the next five days. Definitely. Yeah. Like that, that'll, that'll be looked forward to see. Like, I mean, I don't know if they wait for refunds on that, right? Like, because uh, I and I don't know either with the Steam sale, if it's treated as DLC, you can never refund DLC is my understanding, mm-hmm. right? So if they did actually sell it as DLC, I can't quite tell from the Steam page, then you can't even refund it within the two hours, which I don't think they pulled that, but it's that's a way you could get around it, I suppose, and make sure people can't refund that at all. I mean, it's not like a uh, cyberpunk kind of issue, right? Where like they're just like, oh, let's pull it off the store and all that stuff. So yeah, lots of possibilities here. But speaking of live service games, Aaron has some stuff to say on... Maybe going another direction with things? Yeah, so obviously one of the largest trends in gaming in recent years is companies chasing after the live service model, whether it's adding a bunch of extras to premium titles like we were just talking about with Call of Duty or sports games, or of course, you know, the rise of free-to-play on mobile, but you know, also everywhere where whales become the main monetization engine, but it just lowers barriers to, to getting started. And I think we're now entering a time when live services are obviously still growing. I mean, it's the future of the industry in large part. But the realities of the challenges are starting to sink in in more places. But there are also companies on different parts of the adoption curve of the live service model. And so what I just thought was interesting was this past week, there were like several different news points that kind of hit on companies that are like all on the different parts of the spectrum here. That in my mind just kind of shows that like, uh, I'll talk about the examples in a moment, but it shows that one, like there still are companies that have yet to really adopt this model at all that are still, you know, just setting up, figuring it out. Then there are those that went really hard and all in and are realizing like, whoa, we need to slow down. This is harder to get right, especially at scale than we thought. And then there are others too that maybe just have their expertise is not in free to play and in like live service around that and then are realizing maybe we need to like go back to our roots where we know that we can win. And so it's just interesting to see 
the the trend sort of the pendulum swing back just a little bit as companies figure this out. But with the specific examples, Warner Brothers this week and and the earnings call, I'll just read like a quote real fast, said, our focus is on transforming our biggest franchises from largely console and PC based with three to four year year release schedules to include more always on gameplay through live services, multi-platform and free to play extensions with the goal to have more players spending more time on more platforms. Ultimately, we want to drive engagement and monetization of our longer cycles and at higher levels where for specific capabilities, we are currently underscaled and see a significant opportunity to generate greater post-purchase revenue. So, you know, that just sounds like, you know, a company that's wow, like wowed at the prospects of what the live service model can be like always on. Like you can get more out of players over more time. Like, great. There's, there's one reason they said that, Aaron. Mortal Kombat 1 did that very hard. They leaned super into that. And obviously it worked or they wouldn't be saying this. Yeah, and it might have in in that case. But also, Warner Brothers isn't new to to free to play. They've they've they have a history, you know, even in in mobile of leaning into this. But I also think they're just talking about you know games like Hogwarts Legacy, which was you know just straight up premium, hasn't had any DLCs, no live service plan, and obviously it was a huge hit that you know was the company's largest driver by far this year. But uh, at least on the gaming side, <laughs> I should say, but. Also, like, I don't know, are they thinking about for games like that, adding on extra layers of live service in the future? It kind of sounds like it. And so, you know, this is a company we've seen others go through this before where they they start to see the appeal. They've had some success in the case of Warner Brothers. You know, a couple of years ago, they were questioning whether they even want to stay in gaming at all. And now they're like, oh, yeah, we're going all in on on live service models. So you know, just flagging that as like, all right, they're they're like a big company still in like the early side of like the live service push. But on the flip side, you see PlayStation. And this is a quote from IGN. Satoki said in a financial call that Sony is reviewing the 12 live service PlayStation games it has in the works and committed to launching only six of them by the end of financial year 2025, meaning uh, by the end of March 2026. Uh, Totoki said Sony is still working on when the other six live service games will come out, adding, it's not that we stick to certain titles, but for the games, for but for the gamers, quality should be most important. <laughs> and so now this was a company that, you know, it was maybe Warner Brothers two years ago that saw live services, saw that they were late, and then just went all in on being committed to making these types of games the largest part of their business. And that trajectory still maybe is there, but clearly they've had to slow down. And so, you know, originally, as the quote was alluding to, there's planning to have 12 major live service games live by basically like early 2026. And they just cut that in half because they realized it's hard. And obviously, too, like PlayStation bought Bungie recently and Bungie is best in class at this live service model. And they too have been struggling with Destiny 2 of late. And so I I have a strong feeling that some of the internal struggles, struggles that they're seeing in their best companies is just having a reverberation, a ripple effect on, on everyone else and it's causing them to slow down a little bit. And then lastly, I'll just, I'll just mention, we also saw Remedy this past week, which of course is known for, you know, most recently Alan Wake 2 came out Control, etc. 
just like really great, unique single player games that is working that was working on a free to play multiplayer game and has now said that, you know what, maybe free to play isn't for us. We're probably better at these premium titles. It'll still be multiplayer, but we're we're going to go back to our a bit closer to our roots to pull that off. So this will still have live service components, but probably not to the full extent that they initially thought if they're going back to to premium. So another example of the pendulum swinging back the other way. So, you know, a couple thoughts. One, obviously, as I mentioned, every company is in a different spot and we'll continue to see continue to see that be the case, even if the the general long-term direction is toward live services. But like this year, maybe companies are resetting their expectations a little bit. That's probably the the largest takeaway I have. But my second is just that companies that are more free-to-play native are probably going to have an advantage you know, uh, here. For example, just think about Riot entering the fighting game genre with a free-to-play title. It's going to carve out meaningful market share and kind of lead where the future of that genre is going probably faster than any of the incumbents can change. And so, yeah, it's just we're in the middle of all these interesting trends. But I want to pause there and just hear your thoughts of where we are in the cycle and whether any of these examples stands out to you for any particular reason. Well, I mean, I think with those competing messages, you know, you hear like when live ops works, nothing works better than live ops. And also, it's a great pitch to investors and markets, right? This sort of perpetual, you know, high value, high ARPU, low cost revenue model is amazing, but it's also super hard, right? You know, it was interesting, you, you know, when we were sort of going through notes back and forth, you hadn't called out Bungie. And one of my notes I, I'd made to myself is like, yes, but Bungie, right? They miss, they miss their revenue projections by, by 45%. So, you know... It's this incredible financial dream that is very hard to make repeatable, you know, in the marketplace and in reality. It's it's like the magic's in the magic, as opposed to like you just say live ops and you have this license to print money. You know, it also begs the question of what live ops means in the sense of like how you're structuring the game content, right? Like you, I mean, you could consider doing a DLC model, like kind of like live ops but it's not the same as like right. one where it's like the freemium style model right where it's like are you continuing to support the game through purchases or are you continue to support the game through the whale model where you're hoping the whales are subsidizing everyone else right and those are different business models mm-hmm. and that's why i say like it, it helps to have experience in that particular business model because you have to you have to produce differently you have to staff differently you have to have different schedules you have to like actually set the economy up differently, for example. Like, you don't care about the economy and playtime if you're just selling DLC. It's like, well, cool, as long as the playtime's long enough that they're fine with the price, then, like, that's fine. I don't care about the in-game economy as long as, you know, whatever. Like, you're not, because you're not trying to, like, put all these economic pressures on. Whereas the free-to-play model tends to be a lot more aggressive in that, and you kind of have to do that, like, correctly. Especially for different markets, right? Like, certain markets can bear, like, a lot more aggressiveness on that, and some are like, you gotta kind of at least convince them that it's fine and like nice and that's why i thought i found the mortal Kombat one example interesting because it's like if warner brothers is suddenly saying this because like they just had multiverses that just is still on you know in a coma at the moment uh, well who knows if it'll come back like i don't know how they're going to staff that game for a year without it making any money and then come back i hope it does because actually it was a great game but but mortal Kombat one on the other hand 
did the opposite of Mortal Kombat 11. Mortal Kombat 11 had a ton of content and had a long lifespan because of that. Like it was, people were playing it for a long time, but then they look at that, they look at Hogwarts Legacy and they go like, wait, why are we doing those models where we're like entertaining them for years when we can like charge them for years and like string out the content? And they clearly did that in Mortal Kombat 1. They took some of the content you'd normally get in that premium purchase, charged the same price for it, and then strung it out as DLC or put it in a, in a, in a freemium model sort of thing where you're pressured to pay for it. Like, you don't technically have to, you could earn it kind of thing. And so it seems like, you know, Warner Brothers is like, be like, why don't we just lock doors in Hogwarts and like, you know, oh, that door will open in a couple of months, but you could speed up opening it faster. You know, like, why are we giving them all this content up front when we could string it out more and monetize it? Whereas like, as you guys said, that that's not easy to do either. Like you could do the model where you're just like, well, we'll just hold back content. Like it's already done. It doesn't cost us anything to really run it for the most part. We just hold it back and then we string it out. Or it's the, we actually have to respond to the community. We have to have people managing this. We have to have people generating events, paying attention to the analytics, adjusting things, monitoring the, like that's not cheap either, right? You have to like constantly account for labor, all that stuff, the like ads that you have to push out to keep people coming into the game. So it, it just seems like it's one of the, like with all the ones you mentioned, it's like, did something recently good or bad happen? Seems to color yeah. their comments, right? Like Remedy's just like, hey, we didn't even sell physical copies. We still did good. Like maybe we should go a different route because we're doing quite well how we are. And then like, you know, Warner Brothers is like, right, we didn't realize we could make this kind of money off Mortal Kombat. You know, like, and then you got Bungie like being like, oh, we got to lay off people. Maybe this isn't working so well anymore because labor's too expensive to keep this game going. It, you know, like, it's just, maybe it's just uh, short-term memory. Maybe we'll see what they're thinking next year. Yeah, I think, oh, go ahead, Jonathan. I, I was going to say to your point about sort of like, you know, thinking about like breaking economies and breaking stuff. You're right, you have a couple of other levers, which is like, when you're talking about whales versus stringing content out, do you want to get into the, do you want to maintain a sweat equity model, right? Like most games are based on a sweat equity model where you cannot pay for performance, at least in the West, right? To your point, you know, in China, in the East, you can pay for performance all day long. But when you start, you know, here in the West, when you start allowing people to buy their way into performance, that creates some community backlash and some breaking. And then I think the other piece that you can break is the realism model, right? Like when you start selling things that, you know, all of a sudden you're pulling people out of the narrative, like, you know, you, you sold a, a skin or a costume or a character that would never exist in that world, right? And, that, and that's where you're sort of balancing engagement and sort of, you know, community expectations, for lack of a better word, with monetization. Yeah, and I think it's not worth even dwelling too much on the individual examples, in part because every company has its own circumstances. But I more even just brought up this topic just because I think it's worth knowing where we are in the hype cycle and just that these hype cycles exist, right? So like, I think it is worth noting that like we're at the point of the hype cycle with live services where we're starting to see resets happen. And it's not entirely new, but it's both becoming more ubiquitous, more companies are thinking about it, but also now more companies are just tweaking their model. Doesn't mean it's not going to happen, but it's a, it's one of those like dips to reset to then have a better longer term future. The hype cycle before this really was mobile, right? When, you know, all of the big publishers were like, "Ah, oh, yeah, mobile, the next big big market, the next big thing, we got to find our strategy." And so you know, all the big publishers and and such, you know, are jumping into their mobile strategies. And then for the most part, have had to largely reset what that means and how they go about that. This is like the new version of that in my mind, even though there's a little bit of, of overlap there. And it'll be curious to see what the 
the next one is usually like these either it's like a platform shift or a business model shift that is also somewhat you know driven by platform shifts too and so it's going to be worth seeing like whether you know uh, like web3 is kind of slowed down maybe something ai related maybe it'll be something on another device one day maybe return the handheld these different hype cycles can can emerge and it's just worth understanding how they work that things don't ever really work in a straight line that usually there's exuberance followed by a reset and then it it turns out okay so anyways just I enjoy understanding where we are in the cycles of these things. I think it helps us get smarter about what's to come. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, those cycles are also not necessarily always a bad thing, too. It's like one of those things where the reason I think we end up in that is because like when things are going really well, you tend to get a little more careless. And then some of those things work out okay, and then some of those things don't. And then when they don't, then you start to go like, well, maybe this isn't actually going to work. But I think, I guess, without that, like we wouldn't get people trying things that maybe they shouldn't, but maybe are good. You know, it's it's kind of one of those weird things like, the the thing makes me think about when you're you're bringing up all this stuff is is Blizzard in a weird position, right? Because it's like you've got a business model where like they were always doing these premium, you know, upfront models, and then they tried Diablo Immortal and thought like, oh, cool, we'll, we'll make it like this, and then that kind of went. I mean, it's still making money, but not quite what it was at the beginning. And then you've got Overwatch struggling with the shift from premium to free to play, but then you've got Warcraft kind of on the opposite, maybe if that could sustain. Where that seems to be like if that does really well, I could see them just being like. Maybe we don't even want to do in traditional Warcraft anymore. You know, like it's it's those back and forths because like some things work. And it's obviously if, if something works, then you're more likely excited because you have the money to like spend to keep doing it. Right. So just like with the Call of Duty, it's like, hey, if they keep making money, you can keep making them. So so that's the bottom line, I guess, at the end of the day. But uh, speaking of keeping making them because they were a success, Steam Deck's getting an update. Yeah, so it sort of feels like Steam Deck 1.5, right? I, you know, I think sort of the good news, bad news in this is clearly Steam Deck 1, big success. There had been some talk up until very recently of Steam Deck 2.0 and a commitment to a future roadmap. And I think we got, you know, mostly good news, right? Which you got this new Steam Deck with an OLED screen, much better battery life, faster Wi-Fi for downloads, and sort of part and parcel with, hey, maybe battery technology to allow us to go into Steam Deck 2 is moving out a couple of years further than we thought. And here's an interim here's an interim product, right? I mean, it's fine, right? To me, it sort of falls into like iPhone updates. Like sometimes, you know, the, the annual iPhone update is big and sometimes it's not that big. But it's an it's a nice uh, it's a nice vote of confidence, you know, to what I would in essence call the start of like a fourth hardware ecosystem, right? You know, and in addition to kind of the big three we've traditionally had on a platform that that's mostly been about software and software downloads and and sort of PC based. So it's really interesting to watch this ecosystem start to evolve and transform and and, and gain some traction. You know, it's a piece of the world that I am admittedly less familiar with than than the console side or the traditional mobile side. But but I'm I'm always for more options in gaming, and I'm always for more interesting stuff in gaming. And so I'm happy to see a a fourth hardware ecosystem in place. Yeah, I'm pretty excited for it. I don't have too much to say about this this update. As you mentioned, it's a (laughs) 1.5, so it's not like anything truly transformative. But it kind of reminds me of like the Switch in terms of just like how it's approaching hardware upgrades, like. The Switch literally had like its OLED model as like a, as a Switch 1.5 on the road to whatever the Switch 2 is going to be. And that's similar here. 
And in my mind, like the analogy that sort of resonates is sort of like Nintendo is like, uh, like iOS, just kind of like a closed off ecosystem doing its own thing. And the Steam Deck and just like this other world, like has the potential to maybe be whatever, like the Android pixel version of that is. And I hope they and I bet they see that. And I just hope that they lean more into that over time. And so obviously the Steam Deck does a good job of just allowing you to do more, to play with the software, <laughs> to do more more things. I'm just hoping that they continue to make it easier and better so that it's not even just like the Steam Deck, but it can just become like, you can also play Game Pass on it. You can do other other things, other play games however you want, you know, on your Steam Deck. And if they can pull that off, I think that is what's going to really kind of give them their next boost because you also see like the PlayStation portal, you know, it just, you know, reviews for that started coming out and it's pretty much what you would expect if you've been listening to this podcast in the sense that like, you know, it's a good device for what it is, but you can really just only play it in your home streaming from your console to your device. And it's pretty limiting otherwise, but people have found ways to like remote play your PlayStation to your steam deck. And to me, the much bigger idea here and like the potential future of handhelds is being able to like have a like one great device where you can, you know, play natively on like via Steam. You can stream to from your PlayStation. You can access Game Pass. You can kind of do it all in one spot. And it's sort of, you know, who can do it best? First mover advantage Steam has, but they won't be the only one to to do that. So that's kind of what I've been thinking about, you know, reading through like this this latest news i'm curious if you guys agree with that premise of where it might go or whether it even should go that way or if you view like this like next era of handheld gaming a bit differently yeah i mean they, they specifically said they were they were down for having game pass for example on there it's just a matter of getting it to work correctly right like anyone who's tried to run BattleNet on there knows it's it's doable but it's a hassle and that's that's the part right like you said it's making it not a hassle and i think you know, if, if it becomes something where you don't have to boot into desktop mode with your keyboard and mouse hooked up and do all this wonky stuff just to get it to work because, you know, they just set it up. It's a computer at the end of the day. And like, that's the nice thing about it is it's like, I remember when PlayStation tried to do their whole like Linux thing and then they like backfired on them and they just locked it all down and like gave up on that. Whereas yeah. Valve has a lot more vested interest in keeping that model. They've spent so much time building up that le- Linux ecosystem and like making all that stuff work that it seems like they're in a good position to do that. But like in terms of the home streaming stuff, I've noticed like that's that's expanding even out beyond Steam Link, which was kind of one of the first ones to do that. I still have my little Steam Link box around here that they stopped selling. And then they moved it to the phone and then to this, you know, the Steam Deck actually could do it as well. Like, I don't, I don't know if everyone realizes that as well. If, you know, if your Steam Deck can't handle the game, you could still stream it off of your computer, which I did, you know, for one of the games I didn't want to install. It wouldn't fit. It was too, too much. I'll just play it off my computer. It's a little, you know, a little weird, but, you know, that stuff works. And then I, I saw recently Ubisoft is even going to do that now. They have a, a beta of the connecting to the stream to your computer through Ubisoft Connect. So they're moving into that business model. Question I have then is why does Sony even bother with hardware for it when they could have just done it with their phone, which everyone's already doing? Like if Ubisoft's doing it, if, if you know, all the cloud stuff's doing it, if Steam's done it for a while, like why even bother? Like they, they I mean, obviously like they want to sell hardware, but it just seems like they're going in kind of the wrong direction at the moment. Obviously, Nintendo's probably never going to get involved in this because we know how long they take to do all of it. But it's it's kind of weird that we've got like this cloud stuff and everyone was like, ah, cloud's too laggy. Let's move everything into the house then. And we'll do that for now until it's fast enough, right? 
Yeah. So yeah, I'm curious. I mean, obviously, Sony with PlayStation, they just kind of want their own closed ecosystem. And the portal's probably step one and like a longer term hardware plan that they're thinking about. Like, I doubt they want it <laughs> to only be you can stream from your home, really. And they'll get feedback and hopefully cloud tech will improve to some degree to um to to level that up. But yeah, I don't know if they'll ever want it to to be like the Steam Deck or if it ever even really can can be. So we'll see how that goes. But yeah, I think they're obviously the Steam Deck is still pretty niche in the big scheme of things. It's like very small compared to any other like, you know, big console out there. But if we know handheld can be big, like we've seen it in the games industry before being massive and we see that people still want it. And so I think there still is a big opportunity for them to just clean up the user interface, maybe like take on more of like an app kind of model where like you could just have more easily access Game Pass as an app or something something, something like that to just serve all the things that people want very effectively. And if they can do that, I think Steam Deck can be bigger than what people initially thought it could be. But They'll need more than, you know, just the 1.5, you know, hardware upgrades. It's actually less about the hardware to pull that off and more about um, the software, in my opinion, of how it like brings a whole ecosystem together. So I'm just really curious to see what that'll end up being. It's nice. A handheld you buy, you already have a library for. Like, you're just like, oh, what do I load on it for my, my existing? Everyone always complains about their backlog of Steam games. It's like, this is the way to chip at it, right? But it, it, I mean, it's interesting to think about the idea of like the Game Pass is one thing, but like maybe even bringing on stuff like Battle.net, stuff like that might actually not necessarily be in their best interest in the sense that obviously they get, you know, a cut of sales, right? Diablo 4, when it came out on Steam, like was Steam Deck verified. And like, you know, I, like you said, the audience is maybe small, but they were pretty vocal. There was a lot of people who bought the game on Steam because that was the only easy way to play it on Steam Deck. And Valve got that cut of that profit that they wouldn't have got by just allowing Battle.net to run on there. So, you know, there is the upside to them to not making it too easy to load on other stuff. But Game Pass is not a big deal, right? Because that's not, that's more of like a cloud kind of thing. They can be like, all right, go to the cloud thing. That's fine. Like, because that's not really something we're getting a cut of. But like forcing kind of Blizzard to shove the game onto Steam to get it under the Steam Deck reasonably made them some money at the end of the day. But, you know, it's one of those things where I think uh, as like the Steam Deck gets bigger, it becomes more of an important thing. Like when, when it comes to install base, right? Because people care about making their game Steam Deck verified because like that is a selling point. Like if you go to buy a game and you're buying it for your Steam Deck, you need to know like, is this going to work? And that's become kind of a weird point. Like as a Steam Deck user who got like the very first wave, like I go through this thing where it's like some are like verified and they run terrible and then some are not verified and they run great. And it's like, it's kind of hard with such a huge library to manage that. So I'm not sure Valve's going to be able to do much other than, I don't know, maybe they'll run an AI thing to verify or something. But that's that's the big sticky point I see for them is like, especially if now they've got two hardware models and then they go, they go to an actual sequel. Then it's like, is this, oh, this is Steam Deck 2 verified, but it doesn't really run great on Steam Deck 1. Uh, that, could, that could get a little tricky. But it, I, I did hear some you know, quotes from them that they, that they were at least being wise about like going, hey, you know, it's not ready yet, so we're not going to force it out. We're going yeah, to put out an upgrade for those of you who are willing to buy a new one or those of you who haven't bought one because the audience was small enough that like, there's room to grow the upgrade. Same with the, the Switch OLED, right? Because there was a huge push during COVID. A lot of people couldn't get Switches but wanted Switches, and a lot of them sold during that time. Like, I was someone who had to pay for a marked up 
used one just to get one during COVID. So <laughs> I, I experienced that firsthand and, and Nintendo was like, cool. Now's the time to tap into that. Then we'll, we'll release refresh. And this seems like the same thing, right? It was a kind of a limited thing. It was a little hard to get. Some people probably think it's still hard to get when it's maybe not, but the perception's there. So it seems like a good idea. But uh, moving on to a completely different topic, Roblox put out some numbers. Yeah, and I can keep this pretty brief so we can get to the the other topics as well. But, you know, we're in the the hurricane of earnings season now, getting hit on all sides by, by companies reporting. And so I figured I'd just cover one of them quickly. And Roblox is interesting because it's, of course, a rising force in the industry. And <laughs> I was looking at its key numbers. And, you know, if you look at bookings, it's daily active users, hours engaged, all of those are up 20%. So it's like a like the machine is is clicking, like all in a pretty unified uh, direction. Uh, the other interesting thing of note with Roblox right now is that like it pretty clearly is starting to see operating leverage in its model right now. Obviously, it invested a ton into talent and into like infrastructure when COVID hit and just it created like a spike in demand that needed to to be served. So there were a ton of investments that were made into to the business that are now starting to be grown past and they're you know being free cash flow positive now. Of course, the extent to which they really can have operating leverage is limited limited by like app store fees above all. So the business model is still hamstrung a bit, but it's good to see that they can be uh, cash flow positive right now. And also just good to see that new launches on new platforms are going well. We've talked about this previously, but obviously Roblox being on in VR is a big deal for that platform. And on PlayStation, it's, you know, been in like the top game list in terms of engagement. And so I don't know how much that's baked into the numbers yet, but obviously Roblox, you know, going to become a more multi-platform service, aging up, growing around the world, like all of those are moving in the right direction. And really like the snowball of, of Roblox compounding over time and its capabilities and who it's serving. The long-term direction of what fundamentally this company can be continues to remain super impressive. But, you know, obviously this is still like a $20 billion company and, you know, investors are going to have little quibbles here and there. And so just to just mention some of, some of what the quibbles could be, you know, like you have the rising competition with UEFN. Roblox is not the only game in town. Roblox is still going to be fine, but you're going to see more companies test building there instead of Roblox, more players test playing there instead of Roblox in places, etc. cetera. Um, as I mentioned, the operating leverage has limitations. When bookings and daily active users are both rising 20%. You see that, you know, bookings per user is basically flatlined and you can, I'm not too stressed about that in the long term of things. Just getting the users in first is what is most important. But in terms of, you know, where that will take them even in the next couple of years, this past year has been good. So they're going to have difficult, you know, comparisons next year that are going to be hard to com- compete against. And if you kind of compare that with, you know, just very high valuations, probably one of, if not the most highly valued company in the games industry right now. I was just going to say the App Store fees, like, do they have those on uh, VR? They they must. I, I bet they do. I don't remember exactly what they would be, but I'm sure it would be pretty similar to 
to mobile. And PlayStation would <laughs> would have it as well. There's going to be app store fees any direction they look because they're not controlling the hardware itself. But but yeah, all in all, long term, still looking great. But just little things here and there. If if anyone's expecting like massive wins in the short term, uh, maybe don't be thinking that way. Look a little longer term. You'll probably be be happier and Roblox will be fine. Seem like the poster child for uh, network effects, I think, at this point, right? <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. Killing it. Unfortunately, we've got the opposite of that for Overwatch League, who is now no longer having a network to affect. Yeah, you know, more bad news in the esports space is probably the headline for this this segment. And it is that we have the end of the Overwatch League, as you mentioned, as we know it. Two-thirds of the teams voted to exit, and that Activision Blizzard will pay up to $120 million. I think that's the high end of the range to the contracted teams. You know, this has been a very complex economic story from the beginning. If you go back to 2017 at the height of sort of, you know, mania and bullish markets, on esports, you had Activision managing to get $20 million checks for the original franchise teams with commitments for, with slots for $35 million checks for expansion teams, which was just unheard of numbers. And there were always rumors, you know, that, to get those things sold that maybe they, they had, you know, some payments over time and things like that to finally close them. But this, this was a, a, a bull market story for a long time. And then COVID happened. And COVID was, you know, certainly under the fault of the people who wrote those $20 million checks and not Activision Blizzards. And a bunch of those payments got deferred during COVID when there was no live events. And then some of the other stuff that went on at Activision went on and you saw some sponsors drop out. So there's been a bunch of competing downward pressures from a bunch of places. And then we sort of enter esports winter around the same time we enter crypto winter. And we end up where we are today, where this is not completely surprising, right? I mean, we live in, in the wake of uh, a FaZe Clan selling for $17 million when I think their, you know, their public market valuation peaked at about $750 million and I can't remember if their private market valuation in any of their rounds was actually higher than that or up to the B or not. But so, you know, in the grand macro is not that surprising, but, you know, a, a, another negative news cycle for competitive esports where we didn't need it. You know, if there's one sort of light in here, it's that Overwatch League apparently isn't going away and there'll be some restructured version run by ESL who runs the current COD League and they've managed to kind of rescale that for the current market or at least it appears that way from the outside and, and without sort of complicating the story also leads back into one of the trend pieces we've been talking about over the year with sort of like the rise of Mina in terms of being an increasing buyer in the world of games where everybody else is a seller. And, and obviously ESL is, is part of that story now. So here we are another, another, another bullet in the competitive esports economic story model. Yeah, the seeing the Overwatch League go under, I don't think is surprising to, to most people who've been paying close attention to Overwatch. Um, do you think the Call of Duty League is next, or do you think this will be contained within Activision? Hard to tell. I mean, Call of Duty League had different economics attached to it from the beginning. As somebody who's attended a lot of the COD events, they feel less frothy than they used to. But my sense from outside of the economics of it is that they have smartly kind of resized COD to the current demand in the current marketplace, everything from the size of the venues to the kind of the spends around it. So my gut 
and it's not really broken out in earnings enough to really get a sense of it, is that it has been resized to the current market environment. Whether that's resized enough, I don't know. And I would imagine that if Overwatch comes out, Overwatch comes out in a in a way that 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 matches that. And what I mean is like at the peak of it, right? Like COD's at Barclays Center, right, in the US. And the last event I attended was in front of about twenty eight hundred people, you know, in Los Angeles where Nintendo throws their annual, you know, CES presser, right? So it feels to me like the cod piece has been resized, right? So it's it's not as frothy, but it is it is likely survivable in its current incarnation. Yeah, I'll be curious to to see where that goes. I'm I'm not sure. I, I'm kind of skeptical on the franchise model right now. To be honest, like even beyond Activision Blizzard and this esports reset is still going and will still continue to go on for a while. I think. I mean, we've also seen like Evil Geniuses is kind of gutting its organization, even though they've competed well. Um, 100 Thieves is uh, announced a whole new tier of layoffs and basically spinning out parts of their their businesses. And I was even looking at, you know, League of Legends, the, the LCS, the North American League, and it's looking like several teams might be looking to sell their spots to just leave League of Legends altogether because it's not worth it. And we just saw TSM do that, but there could be several more to come, at least a few more to come. And if that's the case, it just sort of puts into question even for Riot. <laughs> like, why are they doing it the way that they're they're doing it? And, you know, raises even another question with just like esports in general. Like they're just they have different life cycles than traditional sports. So maybe it should be structured in, in different ways to reflect that. But I think that the the ESL and savvy <laughs> is actually kind of positioned well to, as you mentioned, to zag. Um, because as the rest of these leagues struggle and kind of seek to reset. Probably the best place to reset is with someone like ESL, who will kind of take over the operations, run it more leanly with less, you know, big buy-ins. It's more open to to more people to participate in without high spending expectations the same kind of way. So I'm actually, the more I see esports kind of crumble in places, the more bullish I am on, on ESL being able to pick up some of the pieces. But yeah, I think the we got another year or two left of this un- unraveling and then re- resetting, I would guess. Yeah, and I'm in the same place, right? I'm not sure we're at the bottom, but you, says, you sort of said another year or two of unraveling for a reset. I am, like you, long-term bullish on the reset. Like, as a long-time gaming and media executive, I just can't see a world where you have this much audience in this kind of a desirable demographic and not have it be a sustainable business. Like we can, we can talk about, you know, media rights deals never followed, which is a big lever for traditional sports. But, it, but to me, it just feels like it needs to be resized as opposed to like, it's going to die. And if you can just sweep up the pieces, you know, you know, it's almost like a private equity model to me, you know, I'm going to put my amateur private equity hat on. If I can buy the pieces cheaply enough, surrounding top tier gaming franchises and I'm not overpaying for the rights to those gaming franchises, I don't know how it can't not be a profitable business. And to your point about ESL, when you're sort of accuming now the back end, right? So now I have like a shared back end across like 
six leagues or eight leagues or whatever. Again, I go back to like desirable audience, brands want to reach them, scale. It's a business. It is clearly not the multi-billion dollar business. None of these companies probably should have been worth a billion dollars to start with, right? And I, I just think we're, we, we're got, we got to hit bottom and then it becomes something real and sustainable. Yeah, I mean, as someone who worked for ESL for like six, seven years, you know, seeing they're pretty good at managing costs and, and doing things for cheap, helping people start up when they're trying to get into esports as a game. Like that's how Rainbow Six got in was like, oh, let's hope we can make this. But that's the difference. And I think like you guys kind of pointed it out with the, the right sizing stuff of COD, which is the you can't just spend a bunch of money and force this to happen, force this to work and, and fit when maybe it doesn't or maybe just the, the maturity of the industry really isn't there yet. In terms of like, you know, the, we had the outsized valuations, everyone just being like hyped, you know, the the brands being treated as maybe more valuable than they really were due to the whole influencer craze and all that stuff. It was just like, you know, a lot of exuberance, but not a lot of like real backbone in terms of the business model to like actually make it work. And then just constant scams happening where people are just not paying things and all that stuff on top of it just doesn't help with things. It feels like, you know, some like old casino era kind of stuff where it's just like all the shady stuff happening underneath. Uh, it just because it's lack of maturity. Whereas I think, you know, you take someone like ESL, like, yeah, maybe they're, they don't always run things smoothly and perfectly, but they, they put on a pretty good event for a pretty good price. I think obviously things have changed, you know, could have changed and inflation's happened and all that. But I, I imagine they'll probably continue that, you know, under the, the Saudi rule. And so it's just, it's a good opportunity for them to be part of that reset, I think. And, I, and these teams, like, like you said, with the COD resizing, maybe they'll work, maybe they won't. But I think that's a good idea for these people to go like either grow it organically and don't force it, spend what you need to spend to get it going. And if it doesn't work, just either 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 fix it or, or turn it off and don't waste a bunch of money trying to force it the way OWL was just like, let's just keep making right, it right. bigger. That'll make it work. It's like, well, look at the, how often they had to change the game, to try and make it work at that high of competitive level and just never really finding a, a, a fit that was there. So... And then, of course, changing from, you know, the version one to the, the other model did not help with things, I imagine. But like uh, in terms of Rainbow Six and esports, e there was kind of an interesting thing coming out recently that you know, there were some rumors of for a long time. And maybe we just thought oh, it was probably probably just rumors because nothing ever came of it, which is selling and trading skins. Because with eight years plus of a game, there is a lot of skins and different types of skin things accumulated in Rainbow Six. And a lot of them are esports skins as well, like because they had the revenue share model. So there was a little bit of profit to be made for teams in that model. Obviously, like I imagine the profit was relatively minimal compared to say selling physical merch or something, but it was there and it still is there to an extent, right? So there there is a, like a profit opportunity there, but like there is this, they announced at the, the last event that they had, which their events still turn out, it seems like pretty well. Uh, I believe it was Atlanta major here in the US. And uh, and so they announced, it had like a, a live thing demonstrating that they will be having a marketplace for buying and selling skins, which just exclusive to Rainbow Six. It's not like a Steam Marketplace kind of thing or anything like that. It's not Ubisoft Connect wide, but it is meant for people that have this huge glut of skins to be able to like, you know, sell them to others because there's no item training, there's no exchanging. I think they also probably saw people were like buying whole accounts or stealing accounts. There was a lot of account hacking to get things and this sort of legitimizes a little flow. But the interesting part about this is that, so they're, they're, they're signing up for beta for next year. So we won't see it till early next year, but it will be in R6 credits, which are the hard currency of the game. So it will be entirely monetized in their benefit, right? Where they're, it's all like money that has to be bought into their system. So they're already profiting on 
every sale that way. I, I think there is a small, like I think it was 10% marketplace fee either. And I assume a marketplace fee in that case means they just burn essentially 10% of the R6 credits. But the interesting part here is like, there's no real exit liquidity for that. Like Steam Marketplace, you know, you sell your CS skins or whatever, and you can spend them on games. You can spend them on whatever. I've definitely done that where I've sold a skin and bought a game. So there's like liquidity for that money. So I'm, I'm curious to see how this will go. Obviously it has the, the upside, which is that it's not really a money laundering vehicle, at least the, the current setup, right? Like who's going to launder money that way? Like, oh, I've loaded up my R6 account. Now you can, in theory, of course, sell that account, someone else, all that. But I think they're at least avoid some of those problems. But they're also in a situation now where like people might go like, what the hell am I going to do with all these R6 credits? Like, unless this is like, I, I feel like this is like a foot in the door, like moving either towards, like, they haven't said anything about NFTs and all that stuff. So probably not that direction, but let's say it starts to work across Ubisoft Connect. Maybe they, maybe just for now you can buy games with it because they did have a point system where you could earn some points and use those towards like discounts on games or stuff. So I don't know, like you have thoughts on whether good idea or bad idea? Not really. I know we got to wrap in a moment too. Um, but yeah, I mean, my, my biggest thought is just like, uh, obviously a couple of years ago, Ubisoft Quartz <laughs> was their big potential push into building a marketplace. And it seems like um, if they're launching this in a meaningful way around like their biggest ongoing live ops kind of game. Like this is more officially the direction that Ubisoft now wants to take um, their business regarding marketplaces. I would guess I could be wrong. And that seems fine and and good to me. I, I like when games of marketplaces like this and you can be more transparent and clear in how, how you want to trade your own assets. It doesn't always have to be, you know, an NFT too. So I, I think it's a a positive and is decent clarity for where Ubisoft is going. Sounds like it's a safe enough experiment, right? Where they pretty much are guaranteed to make money off of it. If it doesn't work out, they could turn it off, but it pretty much just enables people to do something without many downsides to anyone for the most part. Outside of potential for fraud, I suppose, if people steal accounts, which people can do because people will use chat support to basically convince them to get an account. And then maybe they could sell all their stuff and then that could be a big problem. But I think I mean, I'm just curious to see if this ends up being like maybe a business model or avenue for Ubisoft to explore in the future in light of what you said about uh, Quartz not working out for them and or others. finding some way. Yeah. We'll see if we'll see if we see, you know, Far Cry do it or something else, right? Where they just start adding it to yeah. Assassin's Creed skins, something like that. But uh, yeah. Anyways, lots of uh, interesting changes in the uh, the economy here. It seems like things things doing really good and things doing really bad from the sound of it. A good mixed bag, but uh, makes for some good topics of good discussions. So I want to thank you guys, of course, for the fantastic conversation as usual. A lot of great stuff. Oh, thankfully, not a, a slew news week, and I imagine going to winter, hopefully. Keep, keep it interesting. Thank everyone for listening as well, of course. Hopefully you tune in week to week. Of course, and then we also have the interviews that come out as well. Make sure you're checking those out. And of course, all the stuff Aaron said at the beginning, all the stuff we got going on at Novic, it's more than just a podcast, more than just a digest. We got a lot of cool consulting and other services that we're providing and exploring, as you mentioned, looking for some good feedback on those as well. So make sure to hit us up. Of course, if you want to contact us as well through the podcast, just podcast at novic.co. And of course, we have contact forms and all that stuff on the website as well. Just again, novic.co. So make sure to check it out. And we'll catch you guys next week. If you enjoyed today's episode, whether on YouTube or your favorite podcast app, make sure to like, subscribe, comment, or give a five-star review. And if you want to reach out or provide feedback, shoot us a note at podcast at novic.co or find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Plus, if you want to learn more about what Novic has to offer, 
make sure to check out our website, www.novic.co. There, you can sign up for the number one games industry newsletter, Novic Digest, or contact us to learn about our wide-ranging consulting and advisory services. Again, that is www.novic.co. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.